Hi, this is Steve Kern, formerly a fabulous one, Skinner, Doink the Clown, agent, FCW instructor, wrestling guru. But when I want to know something, I listen to Wrestling Nostalgia. That's where you get all the right information and you hear the real deal. Big Dave. This is Wrestling Nostalgia with Dave Dynasty. Greetings and welcome to Wrestling Nostalgia, the wrestling history podcast. I am your host, Dave Dynasty. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have a great, great interview on this episode with uh, Steve Kern, former member of the Fabulous Ones, and of course, Skinner and WWE. It's a great interview, hour long, lots of good stories. Uh, Steve's a great guest. Uh, I think, uh, you know, thank you for coming on. I appreciate him being on. Uh, before we dive into that, just a couple things that, of course, everybody's talking about. Um, Terry Funk passed away on August 23rd, 2023 at age 79. Uh, not much more to say about him. I, I put out a short episode kind of remembering Terry and speaking personally from my experience and, and, as a fan and, and watching him. Uh, one of the greatest of all time argument. Could, I mean, I, th- I think can be made for, you know, no one's going to argue if you call him the greatest of all time. Uh, so what a, what a one, of, one of a kind guy. Uh, and then also on August 24, 2023, Bray Wyatt or Wyndham Rotunda passed away at age 36. Um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't a huge Bray Wyatt fan, but I, I appreciated uh, the character. I appreciated the uh, the the vision, right? The uh, creativity. There were uh, there were times where I, I really liked Bray Wyatt, but then some of it, you know, not so much. Uh, I did appreciate the horror elements. I'm a big horror movie fan. You know, when he had the mask, it was done by Tom Savini's team. And, you know, and I appreciate that horror stuff. That, that's, that's pretty cool to me. Uh, and, and it's not, it's, it's, it's neat to see someone in that position. That's a, a fellow horror movie fan. Uh, but, you know, 36 years old, man, that's, that's young. He's got, you know, a family, kids, uh, still had the prime of his life ahead of him. So, you know, that's tough, man. And that's, that's wild. Uh, WWE, you know, did a nice tribute. Uh, it's just, what do you say? Right. I mean, like I said, I wasn't a big Bray Wyatt fan, but. That doesn't mean that, you know, that's not a sad situation that really breaks my heart. Uh, so, but anyway, they'll both be missed. Both, you know, great minds and, and great talents uh, in wrestling. Um, but that's that's about all I've got here to kick off the show. Uh, not a lot. I really want to just dive into the Steve Kern interview. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have that interview itself. If you like horror movies, be sure to check out Dave Dynasty and Ike Isaacs on the Listen to Their Screams Horror Podcast. It is available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Listen to Screams. That is Listen, the number two, and Screams. All right, we're back here on Wrestling Nostalgia. I am your host, Dave Dynasty, and it's my honor to be joined by Steve Kern. Steve, how are you? I'm great, Dave. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to glad to have you on. I appreciate you giving us your time, uh, and I'm well, thank you. Looking forward to chatting some wrestling with you. Before we dive into your career and everything else, I just got to ask you right up front. Um, I'm, I don't know if you've heard the news. I'm hopefully I'm not breaking this to you. Yeah. But yeah, just today, I, I Terry Funk passed away. Uh, yeah. I'd like to hear your your feedback, man. This is. I mean, this is not just. Uh, this is Terry Funk. I mean, this is something else. Well. You know, this is kind of hard because Ted DiBiase is who called me. Yeah. And Teddy and I are real close. And, I, you know, Terry had a lot to do with his career. And so he called me and told me. And I hadn't 
been on the internet all day long, so I really wasn't aware of it. But almost every day I hear some news. And then I also saw where Abe Jacobs had passed away, and I was familiar with him too. But, you know, when Terry Funk first um, started getting sick and started getting put into um, retirement home and then, you know, needed assistance and everything, I mean, number one, his wife had passed away. Yeah. And so so the same scenario with Harley Race, mm-hmm. who was another one of the greatest. And I mean, you know, taught me so much. Both of these guys were NWA World Heavyweight Champions, and I wrestled them both. Mm-hmm. And at a peak of my career, long before I went away and did the fabulous one gimmick or skin or anything, but at a peak of my career when I was really in my heyday in my late 20s, I'm wrestling Terry Funk and Harley Race. And to see them in similar was kind of sad because of the fact that both of them's wife died prior to them dying. Then they slowly kind of like got a little bit more disabled, a little bit more disabled. Then it was like things like Alzheimer's hitting them. And then I can remember going up to Harley and he was in a wheelchair and, you know, I loved Harley to death. I mean, you know, he was so instrumental in my career and, um, Hey Harley, how's it going? He looked at me. He just goes, who are you? I'm going, oh, oh, you know, sad. But here's what I here's what I said to Ted. You know, for the fans that are listening, I hope they get this. It's not that this is a a bad thing, but they're both in better place. And I'm a Christian, and I'm I'm a follower of Jesus, and so is Ted DiBiase. And one thing for sure, one out of one people are going to die, and it's just when. But in the condition they were in, their quality of life wasn't what it used to be and it was, it's sad but at the same time to me i smiled because i'm thinking you know terry probably a lot happier he just saw his wife and you know he's in heaven and you know instead of an old folks home trying to figure out where the hell he's at <laughs> but anyway that's my thoughts on terry and i got a lot of terry funk stories i mean i taught him how to scuba dive when i was only 16 years old <laughs> I, I used to pick the guys up from the airport here eddie graham gave me a job he kind of took over a fatherly image for me because my dad was a prisoner in Vietnam and he gave me mm-hmm. a job picking up the wrestlers that Kate flew in and Terry was one that flew in and he stayed in a really cheap hotel, <laughs> but it had a swimming pool. And I said, you know, I could teach you to scuba dive in that pool. <laughs> and, and the look the guy gave me and I'm, I was 16 years old and he's, he was just a kid too. And he's going like, Really? And next thing I know, we're in a swimming pool and like he's freaking out. It was like, it, it was really nothing, no big deal, but it was something I'd never forget in my life, you know? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't, I mean, Terry Funk had a full life. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's not many that's accomplished more than he did for as long as he did. And he did it his way, right? You know, he, well, so he'll often be imitated, but he'll never be duplicated. Absolutely. There'll, there'll never be another Terry Funk. He nope. was like one of those guys of one in a million. One of the guys yep. that I grew up with here in Tampa that got into wrestling with myself and Austin Heidel and Hulk Hogan and Mike Graham and Dick Slater. We all got to learn together. But Dick Slater, Dick Slater idolized Terry Funk and even imitated him. Yeah, he was a he he would do a lot of imitation Terry Funk stuff. I mean the way he shrugged his shoulders, whatever it was. But I mean you know I saw it because I knew Dick Slater since we were little kids. So he didn't do that when we were in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, you uh, I didn't mean to get I didn't mean to get up get off too far off. No, 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 track, no. Though, that's okay. that's all we're here for. That's what we're here for. And you, you mentioned all these guys and mentioned kicking yeah. in. And uh, you have a book out now called The Kern Chronicles, Volume One. So what made you feel I, that now's the time to write a book? Well, you know, it, it was a, a bunch of input from people around me, from you know, my grandchildren. I got five grandchildren that are growing really quick. I got I mean, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where being retired and I have no obligation and I have no boss but God and my wife. <laughs> and I've got a lot of free time. And, you know, they, they want me to tell them stories about wrestling. Then they, they meet all my friends. There's 40 of us that live here in Tampa. We eat lunch two or three times a month. We get together at least 20 of us at a time. So they know about the wrestling. So they want to learn. So yeah. they, you know, I'm thinking... I, I'm going to turn 72 in September and the clock's ticking. Yep. And if I don't leave some of my stories and some of the, what my life was, it wasn't all glitz and glamour. There's, you know, good and bad and a lot of experience in there. But at the same time, I didn't try to embellish my story by saying, you know, that how great I was or how the attendance was sold out because we're in a main event or I just told the story yeah. and I mean, you know, and I've gotten a lot of compliments on it, but, but the concept was, is that my friends, my own peers were, were saying, you know, man, you got, you got to write a book, man. I, I can tell stories about my experience with Steve Kern. Can you imagine your experiences as Steve Kern? <laughs> you're the, you're the Kevin Bacon of professional wrestling. <laughs> if, if you didn't rub shoulders with Steve Kern sometime in your career, you weren't in professional wrestling. Yeah. So, and, and it kind of, kind of kept striking me, but here's where I kept going, Dave. I kept going because I'm a realist. The whole thing to me, it's it's a work, and the whole thing so far as um, Hall of Fames to from start to finish, this is the production, and it, and it, it's a work. Yeah. And so I just I didn't want to come across uh, any negative. And when my friends are telling me, "Man, you got to write a book," and then here they just want to tell me, they say. You got to tell the story about when you painted knobs up on the airplane when he passed out, and you you painted his face and you painted his fingernails. And I'm going, you know, I'm going, yeah, those are some good ones. But then some of them were borderline, yeah. and I'm going, wait a minute, whoa, I can't tell that story. My wife proofread the first reading of the book, and she comes in the <laughs> living room and she says to me. She goes, there's no way in hell you're going to leave this line in there. <laughs> and it had it had to do with something, you know, that I was approached, um, proposition for in a territory by, by a gay promoter. And she goes, you can't even write this. And so, you know, that boy, that came out right away. And it really, if she, when she read it back to me, I'm going like, yeah, I can't believe my writer's name is Ian Douglas. And he's phenomenal. Yeah. He's right. Written five wrestlers books and he just wrote a, another book the bohemian rhapsody history of Bro pro wrestling in the bahamas which is yeah. a phenomenal book yeah actually i did the forward in that book for him but with all that being said everybody kind of convinced me to write a book and and what i was saying about realists is i'm not a, a major player so far as a rick flair or stone cold a rock or hulk hogan but i'm just one of those soldiers that went through the business for 44 years yeah but 
the the secret to my success was I was low key, <laughs> except yeah. for a couple of times <laughs> that I got a little bit too boisterous and you know I had to move on. But you know, so uh, but to tell the story, it was interesting, and a lot of people have given me so many compliments about when they start the book, they can't put it down. Yeah, and. I can my son read it? Can my granddaughter? Yeah, yeah, I got five, so it had to come grandkid approved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love, I love the fact your wife did the first proofread. <laughs> oh, well, she was making sure because if she didn't trust me. We've been married forty three years, and I'm she's she's at choir practice right now. But I'll tell you the truth, I'm smart enough to know how I made forty three years of a marriage too because That's right. she crack she cracks the whip and I make the trip, brother. It's as simple as that. That's right. And, there, and there's no argument. There's not gonna be some macho man standing up saying, Oh yeah, I rule this house. Yeah, rule. You don't rule anything, brother. Yeah. <laughs> You're just lucky to be here. So Yeah. No, well, I'm I blessed. Can... I'm I'm really happy and I'm so at peace, Dave. So that's good. I'm a very blessed guy. So well, that's good. Like I said, I mean, everybody needs to go out and get the book, right? We're not going to, uh, we're not going to spill everything in this when our talk is, I want people to buy your book and I want well, uh, to hear a lot of stories uh, from you, right? And, and, and support you in this book. Cause like I said, it's a volume one. Uh, we want to get a volume two. So everybody needs well, to buy the book and, and, and support that. So I appreciate that. And you can get it on Amazon. That's really the only place. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little about your career. You, I mean, you broke in in Florida, which right. Everybody, yes, everybody associates Steve Kern with Florida first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so tell me what it's like training there because you hear a lot of a lot of stories, you know, about Hero Matsuda and all that, and 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 how tough it was. Uh, but uh, what, what was it like training in Florida? Well, I'll try to keep this short and brief. But um, I didn't I didn't really grow up wanting to be a pro wrestler. I mean, you know, and and when it really came time, I had given everything else a try. I'd tried college, I'd tried you know education and things, and uh, because I was around Eddie and I was around the wrestlers from the time I was about 15 on, maybe even 14, I saw it different. <laughs> they looked beat up all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I saw some rough-looking men. I mean, you know, and they were battled. And I was really, when I was young, I was really cute. I mean, you know, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I should have been a male model. But, but you know, and my anticipation of being a pro wrestler was probably zero by the time I made it to college. And anyway, I got in college and I got on some steroids with these guys at a YMCA there while at college and started competing in powerlifting. I blew up and came home from 165 to 240. And when Eddie saw me, he freaked out. I mean, you know, he was going like, I don't know if he saw dollar signs or what, but you know, he's going, man, you don't want to be, you sure you don't want to be in the business? And I'm going, no. <laughs> and this is another thing that I, I witnessed Dave growing up is I witnessed people coming to the sportatorium because I was on the inside with the family that <clears throat> would come there wanting to be wrestlers. And I witnessed them getting beat to shit. I mean, yeah. you know, I, and that sportatorium there, they would put a chain around the doors, would only set of doors going out. And when they when they got in there, they would shoot with these marks, and I'm sitting there as a kid, and nobody was smart in those days. Everybody was kayfabe, and I'm sitting there as a young kid watching guys just get really get beat up bad, 
and screaming for their life. And I saw a guy get his arm broke and I'm, you know, and it's like, yeah, I don't think I want to be a pro wrestler, <laughs> but but times changed. Then when I got bigger, my, my uh, choices, somebody said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up, Steve? I said, I don't know what makes money go well, doctor, <laughs> lawyer, Indian chief. <laughs> well, I guess those are all out. How about a pro wrestler? Yeah. So the, the start of pro wrestling in those days was different because we had kayfabe and we were trying to, we were really trying to keep the mystique of what we were doing from the audience to make them more entertained. And that's the concept that I was educated on, but I was educated into a fraternity of people that you would die to protect the wrestling business. And Eddie Graham made it a point to tell you you get into a bar anywhere in this city or anywhere in this state and somebody says something about wrestling and you get into it because you're a wrestler you better not lose you better hurt somebody and i mean it was like or you're gonna you're not gonna be here and then this then the training was you go to sportatorium to work out and it's like 110 inside that building in the summer with no air conditioning, no windows, and you do free squats to a deck of cards. Then you would do push-ups, and you'd do neck bridges. Then you'd run the ropes. By the time I actually wrestled anybody, my sister could whoop my ass. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was so out of gas, and <clears throat> Matsuda, Harold Matsuda, would take you down, rub your face in the mat, stretch you. And here's the deal. Out of respect, he never did anything to me right in the center part of my face, like kick my teeth in or <laughs> break my nose or anything. But I felt every other part of my body every day. And it was for almost six months. And when I'd come home, the only person at home was my mom. And my mom would look at me and she'd say, you know, honey, huh? what are you doing? And I said, mom, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. And my mom's going, she's thinking I should have gone to the Air Force Academy, you know, <laughs> West Point, some military academy, because follows my dad. And I go, I'm going to be a pro wrestler. She goes, well, honey, I thought that was fake. Oh. And I looked at her and I said, I said to my mom's clear as a, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. So did I, Bob. <laughs> but whatever the hell, whatever the hell I'm doing down at that sportatorium, I'm telling you, this is real. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what you it did that just built your, you know, your background, and then plus, it also the minute anybody would actually ruffle your feathers in those days and says, "Ah, wrestling, that's all fake," man, you're so enraged because what you went through to get in it. You're ready to kill him. Yeah. I mean, you know, what a great psychology it was. But that's how you broke in in Florida. Yeah, yeah. You you teamed a lot there in those early days with Mike Graham. Talk to us. I did. Tell us about Mike Graham because he, that's a name that's – he's so underappreciated. Man, he was so talented. He's He was. Mike, um, you know, here's the deal. He's a second-generation wrestler. And then on top of all of that, his dad's a promoter and owns the territory. That's a curse of a curse. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if you were the greatest talent, even if you were six foot seven, you know, 235 pounds of blue twisted steel and sex appeal, mm -hmm. 
It doesn't matter. Your dad's still running the territory. So you're going to be in this territory forever. Yep. And then, you know, and you're going to always be included all the way to the semi or whatever. And so, you know, Mike had, here's where Mike was at, you know, not because he's passed away and I was, Steve's talking about Mike, but I can because that I, you know, I earned his respect, but Mike had a little man complex and it's very understandable in this industry. Mm-hmm. Obviously not now. I mean, you know, I'm measuring the guys by the top rope now and I'm thinking about starting <laughs> again. But, <laughs> if, you know, when I watch the matches, I watch the guys that, you know, when they're hitting the ropes and if they're having to jump up to the top rope, I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> Mike would have been Andre the Giant back then. But Mike was um, a power lifter also. And he was one of the strongest guys in the state of Florida. He over minded himself on that small man thing with proving himself yeah he always had to have you know he he you know did great in powerlifting but he had to have the fastest car he was into speed uh, the fastest boat i rode in boats with him on, on the, in tampa bay here where you know you you'd think you guys are nuts that you guys are going 100 miles an hour in that boat and mike he had no fear but he was always looked upon as a small guy mm-hmm. and no matter how you cut it, here's what Eddie Graham used to say. And this, he was like, you know, the genius of the business. He'd say, you know, kid, the minute you step out of that back door, that curtain down that ramp, no matter what it is, every man in that building sizing you up, everyone. And if they're not, I'd be surprised, but they're looking at it. Oh, I could take him. Ah, oh, he don't look so tough. Ah, oh, you know, and when Mike would come through the audience, I'd think, you know, a lot of guys are saying, well, like he's kind of short. And then I remember Dennis stamp one time he was, he only wrestled here in Florida for a short time. And he's from Minnesota. And he said to Mike, he said, Mike, you're kind of short to be a wrestler, aren't you? And Mike had a classic comeback. This is Mike's return. He goes, well, when I stand on my wallet, I can look at the top of your head. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, no, no. Mike was a great talent. He, he was underrated, but it wasn't underrated. Yeah. Here's where you accept. You know, it's like, I guess it was The Rock that has said, know your role. Yeah. You got to know your role. Yeah. Don't overshoot who you are. Just accept who you are and enjoy the ride. And I mean, you know, when I became Skinner, people freaked out like, oh, man, what happened to him? He's a shit. <laughs> but that was the most fun of my life. Yeah. They, they, you know, they didn't get it. Yeah. We were all we're all of a sudden we're movie stars now. And I'm I'm out of the movie deliverance. And I'm doing I'm not <laughs> doing my deal anyway. Yeah. Sorry, Dave. No, that's all right. There's, this, hey, there's oh. always a story. And I think you've told this before, but around 1978 or so that you were considered to be the WWF champion. It was between you and Bob Backlund. What what yeah. can you tell us about that? Was that is that true? What did you hear at that time? Or what tell us tell us okay. your side well, of that story? Well, here's the thing. And now I've heard I heard Dusty's side. I've heard Kevin Sullivan's side. I never really got Eddie's side because he he didn't talk about business. But I lived it. And the whole scenario was, is they had, Bobby Backlund had come from Minnesota and they put him in Florida 
get him a little bit more of an education with his work in the ring. And my, Bobby was very robotish is my term for that. He was very mechanical looking, no real fluid motion when he moved in the ring. He was like Lex Luger. I mean, you know, their arms are locked and everything. He was a great wrestling shooter, but his personality needed some work. And they teamed him with me, of all people. Uh Now, I teamed with Bobby for about six months. And then somewhere in there, and because of time and all the different stories, all I can say is what I heard was that Vince Sr. and Eddie Graham were trying to switch out some talent and they wanted to do a deal where they needed a new champion up in the WWWWWF <laughs> or whatever it was. Uh, yeah. And because of, there were nationalities that worked that territory, if people were familiar with the differences of territories, Florida was a wrestling territory. New York was a brawling nationality territory. You know, you just needed to be from some country. Uh-huh. So they needed a, a white meat baby face. Well, my dad and the history I had in Florida with drawing money with Bob Brup off of an angle, him calling my dad a coward who was a two-time prisoner of war yeah. was, a, was, a, was a great angle, but it was also a set off for my career to show that I had potential and I had something to offer somebody if they wanted to pursue it, that was a real deal that that audiences got captured by emotion with. And so Eddie's, you know, was a really smart promoter and, and they all listened to him and Vince Senior, when they got together, who really knows the story? I can honestly say that it's hard to say. Kevin Sullivan said they made a $50 bet. <laughs> that Vince McMahon wanted Bobby Backlund. And Eddie Graham said, you're making a mistake. You should take Steve Kern. Steve Kern got um, a history already withdrawing money off an American flag deal with his dad and the real deal. And they can look at it all up. And, but I want a shooter is what he said. He wanted a shooter um, a white me baby face that they could just do it. And Eddie Graham bet him $50. He couldn't get Bobby Backlund over. Mm-hmm. He said, you're making a big mistake. If you don't take Steve Kern, I'll bet you 50 bucks. You'll never get Bobby Backlund over up there. And I'm giving you a sure deal. Now, when I was in this whole thing going on somewhere in the stage, and I, I'm not even sure because of the time deal, but it was right in that time period. Vince Sr. contacts me. And in those days, that kind of stuff didn't happen. You're in a territory in Florida. The promoter from the territory in New York doesn't call you. And because you don't have cell phones on top of everything else, I mean, you know, to get that tin can to work with the string (laughs) to your house was a whole different thing, too. So for him, they actually call. And he asked me to drop a belt to Fujinami in Japan with New Japan Pro Wrestling because he was trying to make um, a business connection between New Japan and WWWWWF. So anyway, um, I got caught in the middle of that and they sent me a a world um, NWA World Junior Heavyweight title and had me drop it in Sapporo because that Leroy McGurk would not work with Vince Sr. and use that 
belt that he had out there. Vince just made one and said, Steve, Steve Kern, you're the champion. Well, that's nice, Vince, but you don't know Japan. I got to Japan and every Japanese reporter's go, oh, Steve Kern, who you win the belt from? And I'm going, I'm going, uh, I just walk off. I mean, you know, you're a heel anyway, but it was like, wait a minute. I didn't know anybody was going to ask me this question. So, but so the, I'm not Dave. I'm not beating around the bush. And here's what you really need to know is me. What did Steve want? Steve didn't want to go to New York. Yeah. I, I had no desire. Now I know I would have made a lot more money. And of course I've been that world champion up there and all that. But here's to me, this business is a work mm-hmm. and it being a work, you're going to, you're going to win a belt, but you're going to lose a belt too eventually. And now you're stuck in New York. Now, I'm used to the Southeast. I'm used to Georgia Territory, Florida Territory, Tennessee, Carolinas. When you got off the interstate, you got back on. You know, mm-hmm. when you go to New York and Boston and Philly and all of those areas up there, you don't just pull over and ask somebody for directions. Well, how, by the way, how do you get to Madison Square Gardens? <laughs> um you know, buy a map, asshole. That's what they tell you in New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so I'm I'm so easy going and everything. And when I when they started telling me the towns, you know, and they're going Philly Spectrum, Boston Gardens, um, you know, Madison Square Gardens, and I, I'd already worked guard Madison Square Gardens. Dusty and I flew up out of Florida for events a couple of times, and I didn't want to go. I be honest. I knew it was passing up a big opportunity, but the opportunity never came up. It's not like, you know, oh, wow, they they took you and you didn't come. And no, 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 they didn't take me. They took Bobby Backlund and he did a good job and he was their world champion. But better him than me because New York's <laughs> New York's a long way from the beach, brother. Ask Don sure. Morocco. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, let's skip ahead. Let's talk about the fabulous ones. Right. And, uh, yeah, so how did you and Stan, uh, Stan Lee, first get together? Well, Stan and I had known each other. And, well, he worked. I worked against him here in Florida. When he first got started, he was real green and everything. He was with Brian St. John. Or, I can't remember if they the Hollywood Blondes or something along that line, but they yeah. didn't last long. And then, of course, we crossed paths again in, I think it was Georgia. But then we got into Tennessee. I got drafted into Tennessee with Kevin Sullivan off of TBS because I did an angle with him for the um, Georgia television title. And we did a babyface match on uh, TBS. And it was um, nationwide then. And um, Kevin double-crossed me and turned heel on me and took the belt. And then he left the territory and he went to Jarrett's territory and I followed him. And this was to see if people from um, Channel 17 TBS, Nationwide TV, were following enough to carry the angle to a territory. Plus, Jerry Jarrett had Tommy Rich and he had taken him from Barnett and then he didn't want him. So he wanted to give him back to Barnett and he came to the Omni and told Jerry Jarrett, I mean, told Barnett, you can have Tommy Rich back. Just give me somebody to replace him. And Barnett said, you can take two of anybody on this card tonight. And Jerry Jarrett went out and watched me and Kevin Sullivan work our angle in the Omni. And we did a lot of hardcore up the stairs into the audience and everything. And 
He goes, I want them to. And then he approached us and, you know, I didn't want to go to Tennessee. I told him right off the bat, I said, you know, it's like, I've been in a few territories. I'm not like a, a green guy now. I've been around. I already heard you go to Tennessee, you'll never get over Lawler and Dundee. And they got that place wrapped up tight. And, and he, he goes, no, it's not. That's not true. And I go, well, that's not what I've heard. So, you know, then we had a little meeting of the minds and he guaranteed me that we're going to be like that. But, you know, they're all, here's the thing about promoters in those days. You had to learn that you have to work a worker. In other <laughs> words, if he's working you, you're working them back. But you got to both act like you're not working each other. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah. After you've been through a few territories and a few promoters, I used to say they got deep pockets and short fingers. And they, go, <laughs> they go, you can't say that in the dressing room, Steve, in front of everybody. <laughs> so it's, okay, Jerry. <laughs> anyway, but that's, we met up in Tennessee because it offered that angle. They kind of squandered me around a little bit because Kevin got antsy and didn't like Tennessee anymore in about six months and he moved out. Now I'm there. There and they put me at Dundee, they put me at Duck Mantell. Um, let me see who else. Uh, Terry Taylor a couple of times, and then you know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jerry Jarrett has this brainstorm, and it was his idea. He said, You know, Jackie Fargo was over unreal in this territory, and the Fargos, fabulous Fargos. And he told me the story, and I'd already heard his reputation, but I never witnessed him, yeah. and so. Long story short, he drew out the program he wanted to do. And he, I had had an elbow injury and taken a few weeks off and kind of out of the picture. And so when I came back, had a beard, did a couple of music videos because MTV had just started then. And Jerry Jarrett was really a genius. I mean, you know, he put the, instead of working against some enhancement guys, the same old, you know, La la la! Here comes two guys nobody ever heard of wrestling against these two guys, all dressed up in tuxedos and bow ties. So who's going to win this? Anyway, it, they, we did videos, and it was way better than wrestling. I mean, you know, the yeah. videos, even though they were kind of borderline, you know, now they're <laughs> they're embarrassing as hell. When I had FCW, <laughs> my students would bring in pictures from when I was one of the fabulous ones. And go, hey, coach. What were you thinking? What were you thinking here? And I just have to look at them. So I was thinking how much money I'm going to make off that picture selling it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going, well, you, but you look so kind of funny. I go, maybe to you, but you're not a girl at the wrestling matches. How about that? <laughs> so, but it, it's like having a mullet when you're in high school and then being bald when you're old. I mean, they're going like, Wow, you used to have hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but that it was the fabulous ones were red hot. And here's yeah. the thing. It's timing, number one. It's not mm -hmm. because of Stan or myself. It's the right guys that doing the right job that looked good and they had some experience. And all they needed to do is formulate their their precision precision maneuvers and then get down some kind of right repertoire of what you could do together. And then I mean, you know, then having the right opponents. And we had the Moon Dogs and the Sheep Herders, and I mean, you know, some local guys there that were a couple of teams, and you know, and they were good workers. In those days, and every territory, 90% of the guys were good workers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just figuring out something to do with them. Yeah. So, 
it was so different and so unique. And then it just took off. And the whole thing that to me made the difference was that we were endorsed by one of the greatest tag teams of that, that territory. And Jackie Fargo claimed to be our manager at the time. He never was at any of the shows, but <laughs> he, he would, you know, claim to be that he was, we were the his. And so that gave him, gave us all his fans. Yeah. And, and one of the things, <clears throat> This is way deep for your show, but I'm going to give it to you. One, right. of the thing, one of the things about being a baby face in that era, 70s and 80s, is here's the deal. If you were a baby face, you had heat with a certain amount of that, that um, audience, no matter what. Because if you were a good-looking baby face with a good body, then this is what's going on. And I learned this from my mentor, Jack Briscoe. Jack told me, says, yeah, well, it's okay, but I'd rather be a heel all night long. Here's the reason. It's because that women sitting in the audience will say to their husbands, says, oh, I love Jack Briscoe. Look at him. I wish you looked like him. So that pisses the husband off right away, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, now, here's the perfect example of, of a baby face for that era that was unintimidating. It's Dusty Rhodes. Uh -huh. Dusty Rhodes was one of the greatest baby faces ever, but no no woman in that audience ever said, honey, I wish you looked like him. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, the men loved him. The women loved him. He crossed racial tension at, at a really hard time, everything. But, you know, <clears throat> doing the fabulous ones was the only reason we got over so strong is because the Fargos endorsed us. If we'd have been trying to be Steve Curtis, Dan Lane, and two pretty boy Chippendale-looking guys, man, that might have been hard to swallow in Tennessee. But they just already had had some about 20 years before. Yeah. Yeah. And later, you guys went on to the AWA. And uh, I always heard that you were supposed to win the AWA tag titles, but the Road Warriors wouldn't drop them to you. Is that is that true? Tell us that story. Nah, we won those titles. We, won, we had those titles for a while because I'm – I go to Wikipedia and read all the titles I had and go, wow, I didn't know I said that. I didn't know I said But anyway, here's what happened. It wasn't that. We had one match in Minneapolis where the whole, to give you the back setup for it, we're just coming into Minneapolis. <clears throat> Road Warriors are coming into Minneapolis. They are from Minneapolis. They are not from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're from the... Uh, Minneapolis area and now we're coming into the territory and that night Vern wanted us to do a finish with the Road Warriors where it was something we did pretty common but it was a simple thing where we split the anyway let's just say they're getting the heat up on stand he has a double knockout with whoever's in the ring and Stan lands close to the ropes, but not where I can tag him. The road warrior lands over on the other side, over toward the middle more. As I come in to try to get to Stan, referee goes to put me, I step right out. When other road warrior comes in, referee goes with him to put him out. And as he's putting him out clear across the ring, I grab Stan and jerk him to the floor and roll in face down where Stan was. So I do a switch. So it, it's not like we overpowered them. It was kind of a trick finish, you know, and we cheated, really. So 
when you know when we got to the ring that night, and this has never happened to me before. And I'm I'm not a super big veteran, but I've been through a lot. And so I'm bouncing around in the ring and it's a pretty nice audience. I mean, Minneapolis, that big dome thing. And I'm looking around here come the road warriors and that music killed me. Every time I heard it, it's like, it gave me cold chills. So <laughs> they come down there. And as I'm bouncing around, Hawk says to Stan, um, do it our way and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> and um, I, I heard it. But I'm an idiot most of the time when I start because I'm so freaked out, right? And I kind of bounce over that way. And I'm going, what did he just say? <laughs> Stan looked at me and goes, he said, do it our way and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, that was, I was like so shocked, like, right? And, I'm, and then I, I didn't mean it this way, but I kind of go, what? <laughs> And it, it was more like, what? You know, but I guess the way I post talk, he thought I was challenging that. And he's, he says, uh, he F-bombed Vern Gagne's name. And then we locked up. But he brutally beat me up for about 10 minutes. And he didn't want to, they didn't want to get beat. Because all their friends were there that all of them they grew up with and everything, now they're going to get beat by two guys that look like they fell off the top of a cake in San Francisco. <laughs> what the hell? That's what Bobby Heenan said. Yeah. And I'm going, I didn't blame them, but you do what your boss tells you to do. So yeah. here's my here's my dilemma now. I can't beat up Hawk or Joe. There's no way. This is not the issue. Now I got to outsmart them. And I had the whole time I was selling to try to figure out how to outsmart them. And I figured it out. And finally, Hawk had given me an airplane. I mean, uh, um, press slam. He must have press slammed me 10 times. And I didn't have a big repertoire. So he was either rip your head off or press slam you. So I'm, I was up over his head enough that night to get a pilot's license. And when he slammed me, he kind of drilled me into the mat which was not necessary. And so I didn't, I no sold him. I just stood up and I tagged Stan. And Stan came in and he made a little bit of a comeback, but he grounded him out. And then I went to the floor, grabbed a chair, rolled down and shot with a chair. I just came in and went, nobody gonna take that chair away from me. I hit him as hard as I could hit him and just kept hitting him. And I always told him, get out of there. Yeah, I knew if Hawk got the chair, he'd kill me. <laughs> so it was life or death, and that was that was the only thing. And then was, there was no heat afterwards, but this is why. Afterwards, there was a battle royal. And when we walked back into the dressing room, everybody in the dressing room in Minneapolis was a shooter in the babyface dressing room. They were all shooters. Brad Rangans, um, Larry the Axe, Henning, um, the Claw, Rasky, I mean, um, Brad Rangans and Billy Robinson. And when we walked in, they gave me a, stand, a standing ovation. They saw it on a monitor. They knew what happened. And they knew that I just kind of snapped and got DQ'd. But when we got DQ'd, they got the Road Warriors won. But we got over better. It looked like we just didn't take shit. So I, I said to 
Larry the Axe hitting. I go, that's great. You guys are all giving cheering us, but there's a battle royal. I guess who ain't going? <laughs> and Larry goes, what do you mean you're not going? I said, I ain't going back out there. I said, I got away with it once, but, you know, I'm not rolling back into that battle royal and letting Hawk come just jump on me. So I said, they ain't going to touch you. And they, these old guys, they kind of rallied around me and Stan. And when we went out there, man, they jerked them road warriors around. <laughs> they snapped Larry the Axe Henning, snatched Hawk coming through the ropes and just rode him like a dog. And they, and, and they were all hollering, don't mess with the fabs. Don't mess with the fabs. And I looked at Stan, I said, this could be good, but this could also be bad. But, you know, we survived this, you know, after that, Hawk and Joe, they laughed about it because they knew we were caught in the middle. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a thing of real competition. It wasn't a thing of egos. It was, we were told to win. <laughs> we didn't win, but we got over. So that's what Vern wanted out of us. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and like you mentioned yeah. earlier, later later you were you went to the WWF as Skinner, and that's probably where you're you're kind of most known for as Skinner uh, because of the WWF. So talk to us about for those of us who don't know, what's the process like when you go into the WWF of, of getting a gimmick at that time, and 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 getting you know and getting how did you become Skinner? How does that process work? Well, it's it's pretty much ninety percent guesswork. <laughs> you're trying to second guess what somebody's going to like or want. And because I had been a wrestler my whole career, and this is where my book switches to. My first book goes up to 1987. My second book starts there and takes me through Skinner, takes me through um, PWF. Um, it takes me through Peru, takes me through being an agent takes me through being Doink the Clown, takes me through FCW, so it's a really dramatic transition. Yeah. But what happened in those days is um, I ran into Jimmy Hart here in Tampa, and I was, I was, I was in between PWF, which was uh, a, a, a group we started here in Florida that failed, and wandering. And you don't, you know, pro wrestling is not a prerequisite for brain surgery, so you got to support mm -hmm. a family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start grasping for straws. Well, Jimmy Hart was managing Hulkster and Hulkster being high school buddy. I just said, when you see Hulkster, tell him I want to come to work up there if he could help me out. Next thing I know, I'm on my way to New York. And I knew in my mind, nobody's a wrestler anymore. They're all characters. And I had just killed 15 alligators here in the state of Florida in the first permitted hunting season because they had been on the endangered species list for 26 years. So I participated in the first alligator harvest and I killed 15 alligators. So I had a bunch of alligator stuff. I took some I took a hide off of a 12 footer. I took a skull. I took a paw. I took teeth. I took everything, right? Because I'm just grasping for straws. Now, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? So when I went in, it was Pat Patterson and Vince Jr. And I had met Vince Jr. when I had gone to the gardens, but he wasn't smart then. They wouldn't let him in the dressing room, so I didn't really know him very well. Anyway, 
I start saying, well, I don't know what you're looking for, but I notice not a whole lot of guys are wrestlers and more character driven. And so here's a bunch of alligator stuff. Long story short, Vince goes, that's good. He says, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to put you on payroll, go home for a month, let your hair go back to natural, get rid of the bleach blonde hair, go to brown hair, let your beard grow. Don't trim it. Don't do nothing with it. Just let it grow ratty. And when you come back, we'll have something for you. A month later, come back. Everything's cool. Uh, my hair is brown again, but it's long. Um, my, I had had the uh, beige, basically the Miami Vice looking beard for so long, fabulous mm -hmm. ones and everything. I could grow a beard in a day, but you know, it gotten kind of shaggy. And he says to me, he says, okay, Steve, he says, we got an idea. What have, did you see the movie Deliverance? And I go, yeah, about a million times. Now here's Steve on the other side. Steve was working the workers, right? <laughs> Now, Steve has always been stiff with promoters, but he's getting to an age where he better just be nice and take whatever <laughs> he gets. So Steve's going, yeah, and I'm all excited about anything Vince is saying, right? Uh -huh. I'm a little apprehensive, but I'm, yeah, yeah. And he's going, well, uh, I want you to be one of those guys. Now, here's Steve's brain. Steve's brain's <laughs> thinking I've been a fabulous one. I've been like a Chippendale dancer-looking guy. I've been, you know, you want me to be Burt Reynolds, right? So I'm going, so so you want me to be Burt Reynolds? And he looks at me and he looks at Pat Patterson and he goes, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm going, well, who's left? You know, I'm not playing no banjo. I can tell you that right now. So anyway, he's going, I want you to be one of the two guys in the woods with Ned B that says, hey, boy, you got a right pretty mouth. And I'm going. <laughs> seriously he's going yep yeah. i said i'm in and it was it was so easy and this is the whole thing the only thing was was doing the character in the ring was hard for me because now i'm in clothes mm -hmm. i've never been dressed when i wrestled you know now i got my clothes on yeah. it's kind of like taking a shower with your clothes on you know all of a sudden <laughs> you know going wait a minute i did, forgot to take my jacket off and, oh you gotta wear this and you gotta wear this belt and anyway but and then the boots, I'd always worn the same style wrestling boots my whole career. So they they were like, your feet have to be very comfortable, especially if you do an hour Broadway with Harley Race. You can't do them in combat boots. Now I'm in some kind of work boot. And so there's the thing. Then the very first match I have, Vince goes, he pulls me aside. He goes, what the hell was that? <laughs> and I'm going, um, a wrestling match? And he's going, how in the hell could you know that much about wrestling when you're an alligator poacher out of the Everglades? <laughs> and now I look at him and I'm going, so you don't want me to be able to wrestle, right? You just want me to just kind of brawl and all that? And go, yeah. I said, okay. So that's what it did. But the whole thing was so much fun. <clears throat> Man, I traveled the world. I went to Europe, all these places I'd gotten bad. I mean, you know, everybody was, you go to L.A., all the movie stars came in there. I mean, you know, 90% of them wanted to meet Skinner. And I'm freaking <laughs> out going like, why do you want to meet this guy, you know? But there was a character to him. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. I mean, they didn't give him a big push. And that's okay. Because you don't always get the ball 
I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know who's keeping score, but you know, I kept score of what I did. And sometimes you, you just play the game and sometimes you're the quarterback. So I was more like a, I'd say an offensive guard. <laughs> <laughs> well, so shortly after that, you did wrestle in WCW just for a bit. And you teamed with Bobby, Bobby Eaton as bad attitude. And I know mm-hmm. this wasn't very long, but I just want to touch on this. What what was it like teaming with Bobby Eaton? Because, I mean, you've had some great partners. I mean, we talked Mike Graham. We talked Stan Lane. Now Bobby Eaton. And, uh, mm. yeah, what's a, what was it like teaming with Bobby Eaton? Okay. Well, here's Steve. Here, I'm giving you Steve again because it, this is my whole concept, Dave. It's 44 years I spent in this industry. I've figured it all out. And everything about wrestling is an opinion. It's an opinion. And they're all based off of your experience, what you've witnessed, what you were, you know, um, exposed to or whatever. And so wherever you grew up, you you grew up watching certain guys that you liked and thought were great and all this, you know, and then you came across other new guys and you kind of fit them into your grouping. And then, I mean, to me, I'd wrestled against Bobby Eaton in Tennessee uh-huh. and <clears throat> I'd known Bobby Eaton quite a while. But to me, he's in my top five ever in the wrestling industry. One of them died today. Of course, Terry Funk is in my top five. But my number one was Kurt Hennig. To me, I mean, you know, not only was he a friend, but he was, to me, one of the greatest workers and probably the greatest worker I ever witnessed. But it goes back to now, this is Steve's opinion everybody's not going to agree with your opinion. So you just accept it. But when they teamed me up with Bobby, Bobby had been beat like a drum there. And, you know, the stand gone. I mean, you know, he got into a a rut. I mean, you know, mishandled him, whoever it was. I'm not pointing fingers because who knows. But he just got kind of into a rut. And so him going downhill a little bit, and now said they put him in there with me who – I had just come off of being Doink the Clown up there in WWF. Uh-huh. And, and you know, so it, w- it was a good match as so far as if you wanted a good tag team to, you know, do anything. But they didn't want to really give us a push. Yeah. Because we were already, you know, and to me, I totally understand. One of the things I vowed was I would never be an old wrestler. I don't, didn't want to ever wrestle old. Because when I first started in wrestling, I was wrestling guys old enough to be my grandpa. And I'd say, <laughs> why the hell are you still wrestling? <clears throat> oh, man, bad investments, didn't pay taxes, 32 wives. Whatever the story was, I'm a drunk. I mean, you know, it wasn't good. Yeah. So I just swore that I would never get to a point where when I walked out in front of an audience, I couldn't be a, you know, aggressive, passionate wrestler for what I did. If I had to just cut corners and just do arguing with the fans or, you know, be a comedian or whatever, I wouldn't do it. And then plus, if if my body stopped looking like it needed to look, I'm going to take my clothes off and go in my underwear in front of <laughs> millions of people. Yeah. You know, embarrass my family, embarrass my wife, my kids, my grandkids. Hey, Grandpa, you still wrestling? They don't call me Grandpa. They call me Big Daddy. But they go, Big Daddy, you going to still wrestle? <laughs> No, Big Daddy don't wrestle no more. He just <laughs> does jobs for Grammy. <laughs> so, but, you know, that's how me and Bobby got hooked up. And it, it didn't go anywhere. 
you know, they were really squandered. Eric Bischoff and I didn't get along. I looked at Eric Bischoff as he has a mark that he fell into a gold mine and he was abusing it because yep. he was a mark. And so just back to Steve's opinion, not everybody believes that, but <laughs> you know, it's just, it was an observation. And so, and I'm not blaming Eric Bischoff for not doing anything because he had a ton of talent. You know, everybody was jumping ship. All my friends left WWF. That's why I had to bail. Yeah. I mean, you know, they all of a sudden now they're going to hang Doink on me. Whoa, what a character. I don't want to do Doink. Doink was needed needed to do something else. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, for, and for many years, you had a wrestling school and that it ended up evolving into FCW, which, you know, a training facility for WWE. You seem to have kind of a passion for teaching and training. And you've trained many guys over the years. What's that like, especially when you look at one of your guys like Roman Reigns, who's pretty much the guy in the industry right now? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's what's that passion like? And when you see those success stories from guys that you help train? Okay, well, here's here's the kind of stuff that people need to hear. First of all, I did have some input to Roman Reigns, but he's a second generation wrestler. Yep, he's got family up the yin yang in the mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. He's he's been in this business as long as I have because he was born in it. And so far as what I did to make him any better is I just used common sense. I didn't teach wrestlers wrestling moves. I didn't teach wrestlers psychology. I taught wrestlers attitudes so far as the real deal you need to know is how to get along in the damn dressing room. Because it don't matter how good you can wrestle. It don't matter what you look like. It don't matter nothing. They can do anything they want to do with anybody. And he fit the bill perfectly because he was second-generation wrestler. His name was Joe. He was very humble. He had a great body. He looked like a movie star to me. Yep, That's what I saw when I walked in and saw him. But he was very quiet, very to himself, and very humble. And and something needs to jump out here. But so before I take credit for the thousands that I did touch, all I can say is it, I, you don't, you can, nobody can take credit for somebody's, you know, success. All you can take credit for is giving them your rub of your experience, as much knowledge as you can set them up with and answer as many questions for them as you can possibly answer. But there's nobody that can predict the future. So nobody knows where the business is going. Mm. And nobody can guess what whoever the boss is. If Vince drops dead, then whoever the boss, Triple H, Stephanie, whoever the boss ends up being, what they're going to want, you know? So if I'm teaching you, Dave, let's just say you come to me and say, Steve, I heard you're the greatest trainer in the world for professional wrestling. I said, you're right. I am. <laughs> I want you to teach me how to make money in the wrestling business. Okay. First thing I'm going to teach you is I can't guarantee that. Mm. I can't guarantee. I don't have no crystal ball, but I can tell you that if you really have a passion for this, and this is something you're going to do regardless if you're making money or not, and you want it more than you want your first girlfriend to kiss you or whatever. I mean, you know, then you you have potential. But the thing that you need to know is how do you get along? How do you become well-liked? 
Because that if you're not well liked by your peers, you only go so far. And then they're out to get you. It's like I said in my book, and I say it over and over, is like when I started, I started as a minnow in a sea of sharks. You know, you're everybody's competition. You're not, it's not real, but you're fighting for king on the ladder and king on the mountain. You're trying to climb this ladder. You're trying to get to the top. And the farther you get up that ladder, the more people want to kick you off. Mm-hmm. And it gets to be really scary because it, it can be made up stories in cars. It can be, you know, suggestive things. It can be, you know, uh, <laughs> embellished things that happen that they're trying to bury you with people that stop your progress up a ladder and all these different things. And so you can only give people so much advice, but the most important thing you can te- teach them is number one, be a good guy. Be a good person. Nobody can take being a good person away from you. Nobody. They can say you're not. They can try to make others believe you're not. But if you really are a good person, it comes through and it outshines it. And it says, and then always be giving person. Give. When you sit down with the opponent the very first time, don't say, I want to do this. I want to do that. Can I do this? Can I say, what would you like to do tonight? Anything special? How about this? Are you hurt anywhere? Is your body hurt? Did you injure something that I need to watch out there so I can avoid it? What would you like to accomplish tonight for you? And then if they ask you, <clears throat> which in the old days, the guy would be so flattered that they would say, well, yeah, is there anything you want to do? So, no, I'll just follow you <laughs> because it didn't matter. But, but you have to learn to compliment your opponent and you have to learn to be liked by your opponent. And the other thing you have to learn is to control the announcers. Nobody teaches them that. You need to go talk to the people that are talking about you. I don't care if it's Brian, Byron Kelly or, you know, whoever the announcer is. JR, <clears throat> go in there and talk to them. Be friendly with them. Get them to like you because they're the ones that are talking about you. Yeah. If they like you, chances are they're going to make you sound better than you are. Did you see that moonsault? It's only the 15th moonsault we've seen tonight, but I would think that was the best one. No, <laughs> I mean, you know, so I didn't mean to be smart aleck on the end there, but no, I mean, there's so much, there's so much to learning in the wrestling business. And I, I think that's going to be my third book to write a book on how, how to be a pro wrestler because it, it's not movement. I'm, if I told you, Dave, how many times guys, because that I was a, uh, an in-between size I wasn't a giant but I wasn't a little guy mm-hmm. so I made a lot of movement I mean I was you could bounce me around like a freaking basketball if you're a big guy but it's the idea is just is just giving just giving yourself to these people and letting them you know you it takes a long time to get the reputation that you're trying to gain and they don't usually get that much time now but in the old regionalized day you were always considered green as grass for at least five years. Yeah. And when guys say, how long have you been working, kid? Oh, I've been working three and a half years. Oh, shit. My, I got to 
I'm out of my hands full tonight. Don't I? <laughs> I mean, you know, yep, you do. Cause I'm not even smart yet, but <laughs> you know, you just, you got to kind of go along with everything. You got to be able to be the butt end of a joke. You got to be able to get ribbed and not get mad. You got to be able to do stuff you wouldn't normally do, but you know, it's going to keep this guy from hating your guts. I mean, you know, Wahoo McDaniels hated me because the girls liked me. He just hated me in Florida. I mean, you know, he told me, he said, man, I remember the day when I got all the girls. I can't see that, Wahoo. You've always been fat and ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's, sorry, uh, I'm sorry to get carried away. No, Maybe that's all right. Get off. No, 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 that's okay. Let's, uh, yeah, let's wrap this up. Uh, and, uh, okay. Like you said, you got the books out there. It's called Kearns Chronicles, Volume 1. Uh, it's available <laughs> all major book retailers online. You go to Amazon, pick up a copy. Uh, it's got, just like I said, we touched on a little bit here tonight, but uh, there's so much more in the book. So so go get that book and support Steve and uh, look out for Volume 2 coming up. Uh, Steve, if fans wanted to follow you, keep up, if you do any appearances or anything else, what's is there a way for them to do that online or – um, you know, that's a good thing. I, I really don't have all that internet savvy and everything. When I got away from the business and running FCW and being under control of the WWE, so strict with all the technology and things, mm-hmm. I kind of shut down. And then I'm now I'm on Facebook and some things, but I'm not a social media butterfly <laughs> because it, I have a problem with saying the truth sometimes <laughs> and sometimes it's not a good thing, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's not just, it's not just wrestling. I mean, it could be some other subject, but like I said earlier in the thing, I got two bosses, God and my wife. <laughs> and as long as I'm good with both of them, you know, I'm a loose cannon, <laughs> but you know, I appreciate the opportunity of having me on and I yeah. appreciate the people that suffered through the whole thing and had to listen to it <laughs> thinking it was going to get better and better and it didn't no. ever happen. Oh, it was great. I just want to say that because it is such a memorable time and it, you know, there was a lot of lightheartedness and everything, but this is a, this is a very serious time in my life. And I'll tell you why with Terry Funk dying today, my friends are dropping like flies yeah and and i'm very blessed to have covered four generations of wrestling not just my own i mean you know i just was involved whether it was an agent whether it was training them whether whatever it was i stayed in my industry and he was one of the greatest ever and he'll never be you know forgotten or anything but you know, I just want everybody to remember his family and his and your prayers and, you know, think of your good times watching Terry Funk or whatever and celebrate the guy's life. I mean, you know, yep. so and then yep. everybody that's watching that actually have bought the book, I appreciate anybody that's thinking about buying. I appreciate it. And I hope you're not let down. So, yeah, God bless well. everybody. And thanks for being fans, because without fans, there wouldn't be a wrestling business. That's, That's another right. thing I teach. I teach them right <laughs> off the bat. Hey, That's... you know those people that when you come in from from the ring and you say, "What the hell's wrong?" They're not saying anything. Well, maybe it's you. But if they <laughs> but if they weren't out there, you wouldn't be getting paid tonight. So it's right. you're you're the one that's not doing the job, not them. I mean, you know, they're not getting paid to come in. They're buying a ticket. That's right. So so give them their money's worth. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at the WFIA.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA 1969. All right, and we're back here on Wrestling Nostalgia. Thank you to Steve Kern for that interview. Uh, again, I hope uh, down the road to, to get him on and talk to him a lot you know, more. There was so much stuff I didn't really even get into. I just hit the what I view to be kind of the highlights of his career, some of the big, you know, the fabulous ones and the and the Skinner stuff. There's so much more there, right? So much more to talk about. So hopefully we can have Steve on uh, in the future and dive into a few more stories. Uh, thank you for listening to us, and make sure wherever you do, whatever podcast platform that you do listen to the show, make sure you subscribe to us. And if it's an option, make sure you rate and review us. That helps us in those algorithms that when people listen to other wrestling podcasts and we come up as those uh, suggested, right, that you might like kind of things. So if you can, rate and review us if that's an option out there. Uh, you can also follow the show on social media. Uh, it's on t- The show's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just look up Rassle Nostalgia, R-A-S-S-L-E Nostalgia, all one word. And then you can follow me personally on Twitter at The Dave Dynasty. Uh, and when we put those posts out there, some of the things we put up and share history-wise, make sure you share those. It helps us network and, and get in front of more eyes. But especially when we share the the posts that have the new episode information in them, you know, share those. You might have followers or friends or acquaintances out there who, who might be interested in the show and just haven't heard of us. Uh, so your share could really get us in front of their eyes and, and possibly you know help us grow our listener base. And we would greatly appreciate that. We do one of the greatest ways to help the show, support the show, uh, is to buy a shirt, right? We have plenty of shirts out there. It's at ProWrestlingTees.com slash Dynasty. Lots of cool designs out there. Go check them out. There's going to be something you love. Uh, so buy one of those. It helps support the show. Uh, and like I said, like I always say, guys, you know, hey, there's lots of stuff going on out there. Lots of, you know, lots of content, lots of wrestling stuff, wrestling shows, wrestling platforms, whatever you want to say. There's lots of stuff, right, that's out there in front of you. And it's not just for wrestling. This is for everything in general. Just make sure you just, hey, support and talk about what you like, what you enjoy. And then the other stuff, don't worry about, right? We don't need to bash the other stuff. Who cares, right? It's, hey, if we don't like it, just eh, let it pass by. Focus on what you enjoy. Have a more positive outlook on life. Uh, but we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. We'll have another great guest on there. Got lots of things lined up. Lots of cool people to talk to. You're going to love it. Some historical deep dives coming up. We'll get back into uh the WWE history series that we started long ago. Uh, we're going to get back into that and continue that on uh, and then hit some other historical aspects of professional wrestling episodes with guests and so much more. Uh, lots of cool stuff. Make sure you subscribe to us, but a new episode will come in two weeks. And until then, wherever you go and whatever you do, be good, be safe, and keep on growing. <laughs>